Hi. Um, I didn't really want to make this episode because whenever things like this happen, the emotional labor it takes to read the news, to see what everyone's posting and reposting, it could be a lot. And I was just gonna, you know, read some books during this fall reading week. But then I thought again about why I self-police myself in avoiding to talk about some of these topics. So this episode is about violence, or rather the epistemological approach to violence in the world. The condemnation of violence is not a neutral stand. You see, liberal democracy is actually full of violence, yet people always think violence should be the last resort when it happens every day. This has a lot to do with privilege.、Um, the French Revolution was violent. The Haitian Revolution was violent. The American Revolution, the Algerian Revolution, they were violent. Some arguably more violent than the others. Then there is everyday violence that is routinely practiced. The Haitian Revolution was violent as fuck. They did whatever they could to achieve liberty, to not be enslaved. Yet countries like Haiti, Morocco are not decolonized. France still takes sugar and other resources from these places, as if they're client states of France. France asked France literally asked Haiti to pay, or they will invade Haiti again. Listen to this. Look at this. Colonization camouflages itself and manifests in so many different forms that are. In fact, extremely violent. Yet the colonizers own the narratives and have the monopoly on storytelling around violence. Yeah, this is the premise I'm gonna start with today's episode. I understand trying to be when people are trying to be more neutral and criticizing both sides on social media. It is the easier, more palatable stance. However, it severely lacks critical context and complexity. Like for some reason, we're all playing to this game of respectability politics. At some point, it's understandable to some extent because it requires you to be self-aware of your own complexity and complicit complicity, <clears throat> especially for those in the West. So the easier option is to blame violence on both sides, but that's such a fallacy because these people who are now blaming violence on both sides have never said anything about the routine murder, dehumanization, daily surveillance of Palestinians, especially Palestinian child. Um, in media outlet, Israelis are killed while Palestinians are just dead. Agency. Has been taken away in this context, and it's not done in an equal way. I am not justifying or celebrating the brutalization of bodies or any sorts. The narrative that claims people support terrorism is a deflection tool that positions themselves to critique violence in a moral vacuum they have created for themselves, with no historical context and absolutely no analysis of power. This is actually the same logic of abuse apologists. 
privileged people in the West sharing their opinions on Palestine through news outlet on Instagram or Facebook instead of books, theories, and Palestinian friends says a lot. And here's a question that I've been thinking. Um, are people criticizing Hamas because it offers a tangible help to Palestinian safety? Nah, I think I have an answer for that. It's more about curating a positive and neutral image online for your friends. And that's fine. You can't expect people with an immense amount of privilege growing up in the West who sometimes post about neoliberal infographics on Instagram. They can't always acknowledge their positionalities. And here's, I guess, an interesting fact that's not in public discourse right now at all. Israelis, especially the right-wing ones, helped funded Hamas because they wanted to undermine the power of the dominant political, uh, Palestinian political force at the time, which is the nationalist PLO. Israeli authorities thought they could divide uh, Palestinian resistance and thus rule Palestinians by dividing them with secular, like, secular nationalists against religious Islamists. I'm not pronouncing their name correct, but Israel actually helped Sheikh Yassin and the Muslim Brotherhood to counteract Yasser Arafat in the late 70s. You can literally just look up this information online for more details, and I do apologize that I can't really pronounce their names. Um, so Israel needs Hamas, so Hamas is and only can be the sole culprit in Western discourse when it comes to this quote-unquote conflict. But let's contextualize this. How does a genocidal agenda and these ideas get popularized in the first place? It didn't happen in like a vacuum. It didn't just happen in like a snap, you know. These ideas get circulated as response to an open-air prison stolen land, brutal conditions stricken with poverty, facing obvious war crimes, and expelling millions while burying and banning their return. It's almost like extreme conditions and militarized occupation becomes the soil for violence and armed resistance. And I really want to share a quote in the words of Lauren Berlant in the book Conversations on Violence. Okay, here it goes. Politics is a war of attention. In the contemporary moment, so many positions of structural privilege and vulnerability in the friction is ratcheted up, disinhibited, refusing to constrain itself along the lines of an older mask of aspirational civility or the liberal model that caused unnatural empathy to ground inclusion in the social and political field. So, you know, I've been thinking the condemnation of horrific violence. It's only horrific when it's about striking back. When the IDF does very, very horrible acts, that seems like that just seemed minor and totally justified because we're so conditioned by the media to believe Disciplinary violence and everyday violence of dehumanization is nothing compared to armed resistance 
even though there is an obvious cause and effect in this. You know, and there's there's narratives like, oh, I don't think Hamas will form a good government. They don't even have the ability to form like a legit government, though, without routinely being bombed. So that shouldn't even be part of the discourse right now. And moving on, I really want to talk about the politics of moral purity, of like puritanism. It's, it, it is the language of abuse apologist. Oh, violence is never acceptable, but in only in certain situations. Do you think that they have not used any and every tool at their disposal to be free? Legitimately or not? Does your so-called nuanced take or statements really help their cause in any way that they haven't already tried to help themselves? Schools, institutions, everyday users are making palatable statements to distract themselves from the mess and inescapable situations Palestinians inhabit in. And I don't really want to go deep into the idea of violence. You can, there are so many like resources that you can find. Yeah. It's, whenever it comes to their violence, it's justified and necessary in media discourse. And I guess you really just have to interrogate why. One thing I really do want to talk about though in this episode is barbaric, like as a word, as a term in media outlet and why it is extremely dangerous to use this word in journalism. And using words like animals, like to describe Palestinians, do you see this? Do you see this? The pleading and justification of state violence while insisting on nonviolence as some sort of transcendental categorical principle to fight oppression is a moral stand. And morality has a history, which the means goes back to the people in power. People in power decide what's good moral and what's back moral and what's back forward, what's barbaric, what's underdeveloped. The will to power is not the will to truth. Colonizers have always been portrayed as like heroes and peacekeepers in discussion of structural violence while their racialized counterparts are seen as this dangerous agitators that must be wiped out completely. <laughs> Hamas, like the acts of Hamas are not justifiable, but so are the acts of the IDF. Why does the media fall asleep when it comes to serving full accountability when they claim to be critical of violence on both sides when they clearly don't. Uh, okay. Moving on. A big thing I really want to talk about as like a gay man um, is pink washing. And I've heard this kind of rhetoric more than like 20 times. It's quite alarming actually. It's always like, oh, Israel is more liberal. Queers can go there, go to clubs and have fun. Um, can Palestinians do that? First of all, which which queers? Which queers? Which gay men? I'm so sorry, but does the word queer mean something like a monolith to you? And people on the internet, especially 
queer people who are for the Palestinian cause, it you will always receive comments like, oh, look at what it would do to you, like, in Gaza. Like, do you think you can be gay in Gaza? Do you think they'll treat you fairly like you're in the West? You know, these kind of statements just feel like they don't know that imperialism uses queer people as leverages. Imperialism uses queerness as a proof of civility to make the colonized look barbaric and underdeveloped. This, this is a classic textbook definition of colonialism. Oh, the white people in the West are far more developed, we're far more conscious, we're more rational than the East, the Oriental, the barbaric kind that is waiting to be colonized and conquered by the so-called higher power of Western democracy. Let's, fuck, let's be real here. You think queer and trans people are safe in the West? Y'all, y'all listen, y'all need to listen to yourself sometimes. Safe to who? Safe to who? The white gays? I almost got jumped in Kingston. And I got slur called so many times in Kingston and Toronto. So many times. You know, and it's always the white gays. I don't know what's wrong with the white gays. You all seems to like you all like to justify colonialism and imperialism from your own positionality of power and privilege. Uh, I really can go really deep into this. Like, white queers are the representatives of the good queers who pay taxes, who join the military, who owns the social political capitals, who are liberal and who are in support of democratically enacted colonialism, then the bad queers, often of color, are inflated into populations of the barbaric, or they're just non-existent. They need to be controlled. Their bodies become disposals for um, colonial politics to portray how a place is so backward that it needs to be managed by the liberal democratic Western societies that apparently treats queer and trans people very well, that apparently treats women very well. It's so interesting to me how people are very comfortable criticizing the Americans, or like, sorry, I should put it this way. The Americans and Canadians are so, the American and Canadian liberals are so comfortable criticizing America and Canada for being a colonial nation, for having, for using fear mongering and hate politics. But when it comes to the global South, they become so arrogant and think the West, you know, they think the West might not be perfect, but it's so much better than this, you know, that these people, the Oriental, these barbaric folks, you know, that really disgusts me. You know, the invasive nature of progressive and inclusive ideologies is used to implicitly justify new liberal policies for xenophobia. Um, xenophobia for those who are culturally inferior to the West. Um, and this is not just limited to the West. Like, it's an ever-expanding political apparatus that can be applied in a polar imperialist world, you know. But I am so sorry to tell you that the progressive nation, which 
the land you you inhabit on is stolen, built by slavery and exploitation. Pinkwashing is colonialism, period. And yeah, I think since we're talking about violence, I think self censor self censor yourself to avoid potential repercussions from your job or your institution is also a kind of violence. And a kind of interpersonal and top-down violence. This is not something natural, but violently reinforced. But we perceive them as habituated and naturalized. You know, something we really need to interrogate. Yeah, I don't want to talk too much into this because I feel like this cause has recently, like in the recent decade, has gone the necessary attention. And I don't want to take away the voices.、Uh, I don't want to join. Like I don't want to like take away the spaces of Palestinian activists. So I'm just sharing my thoughts on this. And I thought it would be nice to end with a quote by Kwame Tuwe. The oppressor makes his violence part of the functional society, but the violence of the oppressed becomes disruptive. Because it is disruptive, it is easy to recognize, and therefore it becomes the target of of all those who, in fact, do not want to change the society. Okay, well, I guess I'll see you next time. Also, last bit, Miguel, Miguel University, your statement is absolutely trash. Ew. <laughs>